Mom, don't forget the cheese. Welcome to Airwaves Full of Bacon, the Chicago food and restaurant podcast by me, Michael Gebert, James Beard award-winning food writer and video maker for the Chicago Reader, Thrillist, and more. This is the Big City episode. We'll start with two stories about dealing with the city. First, Chef Greg Biggers of the Sofitel Hotel, who had to work with the city to be allowed to do things nobody else was doing. Then Julia Pham of Relish Underground Dining, who got shut down by the city. Chef Kevin Hickey returned to his roots in Bridgeport to open the Duck Inn. We'll talk about growing up and learning to love food in that iconic Southside neighborhood. And finally, I'll talk to a food writer on her way out of this city, Kate Bernat, most recently of Red Eye. That's this time on Airwaves Full of Bacon. Smoking, littering, and radio playing are not permitted. Episode 16 is next. The city, Chicago. Loud and rude and vibrant and never-ending exciting. In the words of J.J. Hunsecker, I love this dirty town. And as you've probably figured out, I love the restaurant and bar scene just about the most. It's constant creativity and pushing of the boundaries. But for every chef pushing the boundaries, there's a city inspector pushing back. The first story today is about a chef, Greg Biggers of Café des Architects in the Sofitel Hotel, who had to push the city to be allowed to make new things for his restaurant, including something no restaurant in the state of Illinois had ever legally made before. The story begins in the circuitous hallways of the kitchens at the Sofitel. Greg leads me to his office, which sits next to a pair of humming walk-ins. On the shelf behind his desk is a row of fat blue binders. We are about to enter, as Greg had to, the world of hazard analysis and critical control points. Or as everyone calls it, HACCP compliance. So the way this all came about was, um, we got a directive from Sopatel Corporate that by 2015, this was like a couple years ago, that by 2015 they wanted all the hotels in North America to be HACCP certified. Because in Europe, every hotel has to be HACCP certified before they can even open. And so they wanted that to be directed here. And what it is, is it boils down to a food safety certification, which no one has here. We, we don't do that really. And so we got a third party auditor to certify us and it was upwards of 10 grand just be to have them come in and do it and so these 17 books is our HACCP program so, so you know, what, what did it cover that you weren't already doing? all kinds of all kinds of really intense laws so if you make a batch of soup you have to bring that down from above 140 to 70 degrees within two hours and then 70 to below 40 within two more hours so documenting all that, like checking the temperature every hour. And um, same thing with any kind of internal cooking temperatures, like if you know we're cooking chicken for a banquet, documenting that it was above 165 before we sent it out. But there was a lot of stuff outside of just like logs that we had to have, such as vendor guarantees. So I had to reach out to all my, all my uh, purveyors, and we have probably 60. And Hey, I need a letter from you stating that you're either HACCP certified or you're doing it the right way or whatever. So we had to collect all those. And I mean, it was intense. Like it was a lot of standard operating procedures. We had to do um, HACCP manual was the biggest thing. So it's like, it's like a, a bio, you know, a bioengineer would put something together like this. You know, it's, it's like, you, it's hard. It took me really six months to understand it. And then I had to write a plan. So that's where it started. Uh, and then I kind of, you know, the chef of me was like, well, what's in it for me? You know, like, why, okay, what are we gonna do with this Sopatel directive? And so I was like, 
All right, well, what do we need to do to make everything in-house? And so we started with sous vide because in the city of Chicago, you have to be certified as sous vide. You got to be certified for everything. So, and then... Which I'm surprised you didn't already have. No. I mean, you have to, like... It, it's a lot. I mean, the city of Chicago... What I've learned with the city of Chicago, yes, there's some really good people that, you know, I've learned to work with, and you do it the right way, and you have all the stuff together, they'll they'll work with you and they'll let you do whatever you want. But what I've found is on the inspector level, they don't know. So they much rather say, nope, you can't do it, rather than be ahead of the chefs and teach us how to do it. Like, I had to do it all on my own. I had to figure it out all on my own and then go to them and say, here's everything possible you could ever want instead of them giving me a directive of, okay, here's what you need, here's how you do it, and this is why. So, you know, and I think the same for New York and a lot of the health departments. They're just so behind the chefs as far as, like, all these techniques we want to do and, you know, even the old school stuff, like fermenting and... You know, that kind of stuff. They're just behind, and they don't have the manpower, so they're not they're not able to say, okay, well, they're not able to teach us. You know, so which is sad. So what I did was I split my team up into team. Took my sous chef teams and my and my pastry team, and so Josh and uh, a couple other guys went to Old Town Social and um, Stash there for a week and then Jerry came over and Zeeshan came over at separate times throughout the process and like really helped us get it rolling. Um, and then I got in touch with Paul Barak. So I had another part of my team that they, uh, you know, trained with Paul. He came over and showed us how to can and all that good stuff. And then Lee and I took on the cheese. So uh, we went to, um, we went to Zingerman's and staged up in uh, cool. Ann Arbor, and we went to Becker Lane. Cheese was a big one, because there's no, according to the state of Illinois inspectors, there's no other hotel or freestanding restaurant who's doing what we're doing in the state of Illinois. So they sent two inspectors up twice, and like we're really up, you know, up in all of our stuff, because they're like, what the hell are you guys doing, like why? Because we got a certification for a dairy manufacturing plant. So we're actually the same certification as Dean's or Prairie Farms or anything like that. We have the same, we can do the same exact things. So is there any restaurant at all that does it? No. No. Not that, not that they knew of. Because they were like blown away that we were doing this. And they were just like, what in the hell are you guys up? When I called them, they were like, wait a minute, what do you want to do? I was like, well, so... Apparently, and I learned, I mean, like, over the last two years, I've learned so much, and it's, it's like one of those eye-opening things of, like, how the cogs turn, and, um, but apparently, you can't make ice cream unless you are certified by the state of Illinois, so, like, all these places that are, like, you know, even we, like, we were doing ice cream, you know, we got an ice cream maker, and, but we weren't allowed to do it, and there's so many restaurants, and, the fact that there's only one guy for the city of Chicago that does dairy, so everybody gets away with it. But once they realize that they can get more money by finding everybody, yeah. not that they realize, but like, so they'll be, once the city needs it and the state needs it, they'll be, you'll see a lot more fines going out. We walk to a small backup kitchen, which has been taken over by an automatic device stirring what appears to be a few gallons of milk connected to another device, which looks like it's there to record an earthquake. This is, this was the biggest piece of the puzzle. So by the state of Illinois and by the uh, uh, FDA, you have to pasteurize milk once it comes to your property, even though it's been pasteurized. So they want you to prove that you're bringing it up to 145 for 30 minutes um, to pasteurize it again. So, this is our chart recorder. So, in here is milk, and what this whole thing does is you have a airspace thermometer, a product thermometer. This is an agitator, so it's just a paddle on a wheel that is stirring it the entire time. 
the way it works is you bring it up to the temperature of 145 on this chart recorder and it has to go for 30 minutes. So normally these things are 100 gallons. This is four. <laughs> so, so what we do is we pasteurize for um, a couple of days and get about uh, 50 gallons of pasteurized milk. And then we'll make a 50 gallon batch. So it's two full days of four gallon batches over and over and over. So then we'll take it over to our other kitchen and do, we have a kettle that we cook in. And Is I, anybody working on trying to come up with a way that they can get it to you sealed, you know, and stamped pasteurized or something? I, you know, even at Zingerman's, they have like a 150 gallon pasteurizer. So if you imagine that thing that you have to climb up on a ladder and yeah. so they have a tanker that comes in sealed with a connecting hose that goes into this thing sealed. And then they had to pasteurize it again. I, I it just don't, it blows my mind. And I was asking them, and you know, cheesemakers are a breed of their own. You know, like, th that's what I learned too. Like, they are very unique people. And this guy, as Zingerman's, he's, he is such a scientist and loves his craft. I mean, like, one of those crazy guys, but he's just like, you know, very conspiracy, conspiracy theory, like, you know what I mean? Like, and so I, asked him the wrong question which which was what you just asked me and he just you know the federal government like and i was like oh <laughs> shit here we go you know 20 so, minutes later oh yeah it was like he had graphs on the dry erase board about why and like micro microbials and all this stuff so we're in front of a giant vat yeah so this is a 60 gallon vat um this is a steam kettle this has been pasteurized over there um and then cool down and then brought back up timber. So this we're, we're doing Talagio today. Um, and so we've done 50 gallons of pasteurized milk. And then we're gonna bring it up to 92. So this is our temperature gauge. Uh, we'll bring it up to 92 degrees. And then we'll add all of our culture and rennet. For the cheese, we've been going, we've been about eight months. So we've been, you know, like we stodged last year and really started learning how to do it. And then we've been producing cheese for eight months. So, so we just weren't letting people eat it. You know, like we were just testing and trying to figure out what the hell we were doing. Because I mean, it's like, it, it's like a, you know, a welder learning how to be a nurse like you know what i mean like we were like oh well this is you know it's just another like it's like learning how to make a consomme or custard no it it's we've thrown out probably 300 gallons of milk like it just either doesn't work or we're happy with it or that kind of thing but it was like it was like learning another craft and the thing that like i stopped lee one day i was like all right stop like we we gotta we gotta reapproach this because we were so far out of our element that we forgot how to cook. You know what I mean? Like we were like, oh, well this says, let it rest for 45 minutes and then cut it. Instead of like touching, seeing, feeling the way we cook everything else and understand, because we didn't know what we were looking for. We've thrown away brie, we've thrown away, you know, and, and I was trying to run before I could walk too. So I was like, all right, well, let's get the raw milk in. Like number, batch number two, you know what I mean? Like, and so I, I pay all this money for this raw milk and it was just crap. Like, you know, like we had it in the cave for like three days. I was like, get that shit in the garbage. Like, you know, like you can tell it was just crap. All right, so our cooler's on the third floor that we, uh, so it was a working usable cooler that one day I decided I was gonna evict everybody from and make it our cheese cave. So that took a little, there's a lot of uh, moving parts to this and a little bit of political maneuvering to, I mean, you see we're very busy all the time. So it's uh, to add a three more things in here. All right, so this is our cave. Beautiful gnarled salumi of different shapes and sizes hang, tagged with date and weight, along one wall, while a small number of rounds of cheese covered in wax rest on wooden shelves. The smell is beautiful, productive, 
like food being made in the great old ways. We have four lamb prosciuttos. We have lomo, sopressata, finocchiono, um, brusciola, lamb sopressata. Like I said, the space is very uh, hard to come by, so I had to figure out how to age cheese and charcuterie in the same cooler. So with that was finding the sweet spot of the temperature and the humidity that both of them would work together at. So what we found is around 60 degrees, 60 to 70 humidity and 55 degrees temperature. Um, so the first time we introduced cheese into here, our cave blew up the green mold. Like, which is normal, I mean, you know, we had to pull everything out, wash it down with vinegar and that kind of thing, and calm everything down. Because the molds were kind of competing, and and like our salubis got all this mold from here, and so we had to mess with the humidity. Our humidity was too high, and our temperature was too low, and all this stuff. So we really had to like figure it out. Um, so what I like to do is, since we're keeping so much in here, I try to protect as much as possible. So all of our hard cheeses we're doing with wax. So our black wax are um, six months cheddar, and then our uh, red is tone. Um, so we right now we have probably ten wheels of cheddar and about six wheels of tone in here, and then we have some more brie that's coming out, um, and. Some cheeses, like Tellagio, we don't need to age in here. So I'll show you our Tellagio as well, but like that ages at a normal temperature, meaning below 40 degrees. We keep it like 38, 40 degrees. And so that's downstairs in the Through this whole process, I got a certified uh, professional in food safety, which is uh, a certification. You know, I had to take a 200 question test and weird room downtown and like with headphones on and stuff and so and we have our HACCP certification so it was you know all these certifications over here which I mean back to your question I haven't had any trouble okay because the inspectors that came in I've showed them these letters from Garen Butler who is the head of the food safety for the city of Chicago and their response was wow I've never seen one of these <laughs> and so from there, they didn't even look. I mean, like, you know, I hate to say that, but, like, from there, they were like, oh, you're good. Yeah. You know, like, they didn't even question it. And for our canning and our salumi and that kind of thing, so it's been it's been good. And, you know, I think being able to show them all this stuff, too, and the amount of paperwork we have and the amount of, like, because anytime they ask me for anything, I'm like, here you go, here's... 1,400 pages yeah. worth of what you're looking yeah, for. Yeah, look at volume 8, yeah, 9, exactly. So they're like, uh, fine. Sounds <laughs> great. So, you know, like I showed them this with these two, which pretty much say that uh, I can do charcuterie, or, uh, sous vide, canning, fermenting, all that stuff. Um, and they're just like, okay, fine. So that's never been a problem. All of this was kind of like when I brought it up to these guys, they're like, <laughs> you know, like, one, that'll never work. Two, that's a whole lot of work. And so, I mean, like, now that I put it all through the ringer, and I think that, especially my chefs, and now it's getting down to the rest of my team, but my chefs learned a hell of a lot over the last two years, whether that's canning or charcuterie or just this kind of stuff, but they've learned, I mean, we have... 12 inspections a year by 14, I mean, by four different agencies. You know, like all these things are like running now. It's not like, oh shit, the health inspector's here. Let's try to fix everything. You know, <laughs> like it's, it's now it's like everybody knows the drill. Everybody knows, you know, it's not like everybody's panicking when somebody shows up at our door. So it's nice. <laughs> Cafe des Architects and the Sofitel Hotel are at 20 East Chestnut Street. 
the tasty stuff that Greg Biggers and his crew are making is available under the name Chestnut Provisions and is featured on the menus in the hotel in various forms. A chef like Greg Biggers is more than high-profile enough that he has to follow the letter of the law, even when he has to figure out what it is himself. But there are also underground chefs in Chicago, refining their skills and learning what they want to do by cooking in apartments for small groups of paying strangers. This sails under the radar most of the time, but sometimes the city finds out about them and shuts them down. This happened to Julia Pham. She grew up working for her grandparents and her aunt in their Vietnamese sandwich shop, Ballet, at Broadway and Argyle. And a few years ago, she started serving underground dinners in her Lincoln Square apartment, first as badass babes, then as relish underground dining. Underground dining gave her a low-risk way to explore what she wanted to do with food. But just as that journey of self-discovery was paying off and she was finding an audience, she got a citation and had to quit. Shortly after the man shut her down, we met at a little, well-worn Vietnamese noodle joint, Double Happiness, on Argyle, to talk about her path from teenage help to underground chef, and what's next. I've been coming here since I was five, and uh, my grandparents love this place. Um, my grandmother still comes here when she comes to Chicago. Um, she lives in Vietnam now, but oh, okay. she comes uh, back to the States from time to time. And for years, did she run the ballet bakery? or? Yeah, she okay. did. Um, she did up until 2004 or 2005. Okay. Um, and at the time, my grandparents were thinking of retiring, and they didn't know who they wanted to take over, so they called my aunt, and she had a pho restaurant called Pho Cyclo um, in Virginia at the time. You know, her parents called, and she wanted to support them, so she just sold the sold her shop and then came here to run the shop um, and they were at their old location for like three or four years before they um, bought the Thai grocery store next door but they shut it down and expanded ballet didn't they yeah they did okay right, yeah. right, right. which is very snazzy now right unlike where we are right now which is very old people's dinery. Totally. And ballet would probably still look like this if my grandparents were in it. Thank you. soup. Yeah. Yeah. In a few moments, we have soup in front of us. And Julia tells me how she got started doing underground dinners. All right. This looks great. I have there are all these cuttlefish things sticking up from it. <laughs> no. There are all these um, accoutrements too. It's just like pickles, peppers, hot sauce. There's some fried garlic if you want it. Oh, cool. I think this is garlic oil. When I first started, um, I think that my taste was a little less refined, and um, I didn't. I just kind of. I just didn't know where to start. So what I did was I had all these food ideas and I wanted to try out these different techniques and flavor combinations. So I would make four course dinners, but they were all French based. And it's not something that I'm familiar with. So um, not being, you know, formally trained or anything. And so I just wasn't, I didn't have as much direction um, then. And then in the last year of it, I think it was it was almost exactly a year ago uh, when I relaunched Relish um, with a an Asian American focus, um, and it it totally changed the entire response. I mean, people were more responsive, people were more interested in what I had to say because I was sharing stories along with what I was cooking, um, but I focused on two um, courses uh, with the intention of focusing on wontons and noodles. And I just thought it was an appropriate time. We were going through a rough fall <laughs> and then fall right into winter. So it just seemed all pretty fitting to me with like my identity uh, 
and then trying to present that to everybody um, in a clear way, in a focused way. I wanted like a per particular thing that I could master. I also did the dry egg noodle dish that um, I had recommended earlier um, with the sauce at the bottom. And I did my own version of that. I kind of told my story about my grandparents coming here with them last. Um, and that was like my last food memory with my grandfather when he was alive. And um, was just that he he came here and ate that. Yeah. Okay. Food is such a big trend right now in general, but there are these little sub trends of different cuisines. I think it's an honor that people are taking interest in Vietnamese food. I think it's an opportunity to get out there and educate people about what what Vietnamese food is and how it can range um, and different regions it comes from, uh, what flavors there are um, that are essential. Um, but just like any other food trend, I worry that it'll disappear, that people won't be interested in, in it anymore. That happens, that naturally happens in the food scene. Yeah, I mean, I think there will be fewer ramen places soon than there are right now. Right. But who knows? Maybe it'll be like pizza. People will just eat, you know, real ramen, not microwave packaged ramen. Yeah. Uh, from now on. Yeah, that's the hope. I mean, um, that would be great. Like if we actually went back in time and brought that into the future, right? Like there is this like revival of like handmade things and not just like prepackaged mass produced anymore like we're actually working on making these things from scratch and doing it with care that's that's why i wanted to focus on egg noodles and and wontons um i mean this place is great because they do make their own wontons but they do buy the noodles and that's something that's a tradition i wanted to keep alive and learn how to do myself and it's really empowering um and i feel like if we did that with just about any mass-produced thing, we would all have jobs. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but then the the other difference is thirteen bucks for your bowl of ramen versus true. the seventy-five cent package. But, <laughs> That's true. Yeah. But that is the real cost of food. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think the city? It, how do you think they found out? I mean, are they paying attention to publicity about the dinners, or what do you think? No, um, they had no idea about anything that was going on. They didn't know who I was. Um, they were asking me really basic questions, um, indicating that they had not seen the paper. They were asking, so were you in the red eye? What month did it come out? Um, what kind of... Um, business do you run here? What kind of food is it? How often do you do it? So it was clear that they didn't know anything about it and they hadn't seen it in the paper at all. Um, it had to have come from somebody who had purchased a ticket um, and had evidence that I was holding the dinners from a receipt or something. The address is not given to the public. Um, and it's the, really, you know, the only way to find out where the dinners are is to purchase a ticket. Um, so there is really no other way. And they actually, they came to my home, so they knew exactly where it was. And that person um, definitely obtained the address. So what now? What's, what's the next step? Assuming that no one at the city will listen to my podcast. <laughs> Next step, um, I do need to look into other ways of being legit. I am uh, thinking of doing it in a more public space, like not a house, um, and I'm trying to figure out where that is. Um, I do know that I need to talk to people who have been in the scene and, and get some insight from them and move forward from that. It's not going to stop me from cooking, for sure. Um, I just think that there are other ways to do it, and Relish might take a different format, um, 
or maybe I'll come out with a, a different concept, but I think for the next couple months I'm gonna like meditate on it and then come out with something even better. Um, in the meantime, I'm actually starting a food zine called Yuki Mochi. Okay. Um, and it's going to be a collection of short stories, artwork, um, poetry, and uh, I think I'm going to try and sell it to Quimby's or through Quimby's. Um, so what's the name mean? Yukimochi is actually um, a Japanese goddess who possesses food. Okay. Um, she was married to Anari, who is the god of rice, um, and Anari came home for dinner one day, and she was cooking, and um, he actually sliced her head open. Um, the gods. What are you going to do with them? Right? They're just so dramatic. <laughs> um, he sliced her head open and was upset that she was cooking, um, feeling like she had emasculated him. So... Um, her body fell to the ground and continued to grow grains, and she lives on as the the goddess of food. Um, yeah, um, so I'm really excited about that, and I've just been getting more into food writing lately. I feel like, you know, since I got the citation, that it's kind of a way for the universe to say like. What did you learn from this? How can you articulate that? What kind of like intellectual journey can you go on through that? Do you see a restaurant, a full-fledged restaurant, down the road at some point? Totally. Okay. Yeah. I've been thinking about it for years, but, you know, like, I've only been cooking professionally for a little less than three years. Yeah. And I'm, I'm only 26. Um, there's a lot more that I need to learn, and I hope to do that in the following years and give myself some time to fully develop what I'd like to see um, and make into a tangible thing, a restaurant. Um, so I'm just, you know, using this time as like getting an education for myself. Double Happiness is at 1061 West Argyle. It was new to me, but the Argyle area has long been one of my favorite ethnic food strips, and it has a fascinating history. In the 1970s, Chinese seeking to get out from under the Onlong Tong that controlled Chinatown, at least until the feds finally busted it up in the 80s, started buying property in Uptown for a new Chinatown on the north side. They did that just in time for the Vietnamese boat people to arrive and make it a Pan-Asian neighborhood. Today there's Thai, Chinese food, and most of all Vietnamese food up and down both Argyle and that stretch of Broadway. Sun Wa is the most famous Chinese restaurant, a Hong Kong-style barbecue restaurant, but I also recommend Chu Quan, a Chinese bakery with things like pork bao and mooncakes. While Tank is the best known of the Vietnamese restaurants, and it's certainly accessible, but I like others better. Pho 888 has lots of good pho, the light, refreshing Vietnamese noodle broth. Cafe Huang does a great version of the darker, funkier bun bo hue soup. Nahong is probably my favorite for grilled meat and seafood dishes. They have a great dish of spicy crabs. You have to work a lot to get any meat off them, but they're really good. And as mentioned, Ballet has fine banh mi sandwiches. Those are my recommendations, but really, the whole street's pretty inexpensive and worth just exploring and poking around on your own. I'll have links at skyfullofbacon.com for things I've written about some of these places to help you scope out what to order. And while we're chatting in between segments, let's do the usual short plug. If you like these podcasts, show that you do by subscribing at iTunes or Stitcher. 
and by sharing them with other people on social media like Twitter and Facebook. That's the best way to help me get the word out, build an audience, and thus want to keep doing it. You'll find the links for all these things at skyfullofbacon.com. If you had to call one place the quintessential Chicago neighborhood, it'd have to be Bridgeport, a Southside white ethnic enclave full of classic taverns and joints, including the city's oldest, Shallers Pump, and home for most of a century to the Irish political machine that runs things around here. Chef Kevin Hickey probably couldn't wait to get out of there when he went to work all over the world for the company that owns the Four Seasons Hotel chain winning a Michelin star in Chicago for seasons and local acclaim for its successor, Allium. But after two decades, he's gone back to his roots about as much as you can, not only moving back to Bridgeport, but opening his and Rocket Ranch's latest restaurant, The Duck Inn, on the very street where he grew up. I talked with him about opening a restaurant there, and how this new place is really just the latest step in a family history stretching back five or six generations. We started by talking about the original Duck Inn back in the 1930s. I'll tell you what I, what little I know. I don't know a lot because I honestly there is, as far as I know, only one person left that I can talk to that was ever there. That's my Aunt Mary, and she was there. Uh, once or twice, and she came in for dinner uh, last uh, Saturday. Um, and her husband is actually in the photograph. Oh, really? That's the, that is the back of our menu. He's the little boy in the picture. Um, so my my great grandmother Grace, her husband, my great grandfather James Hickey, he um, he was about the third generation in the family business, which was mostly. Um, like a car, limousine, truck business, but it slowly morphed into a funeral business. And he died. And he was pretty young. Uh, but they had seven kids, I think, seven kids. My grandfather was the oldest, but he wasn't quite old enough. So when he died, um, my great-grandmother lost the business because she couldn't run it. She didn't have a license. So she lost the business, had to sell it, and the only thing she knew how to do was cook. She was very well known for cooking and her candies and so forth. Everybody in the neighborhood loved it. So they owned property at 35th and Ashland. And she opened a bus stop diner and called it the Duck Inn. And uh, she ran it for anywhere from five to ten years. I can't get a straight answer out of anybody. And uh, made the money back, made enough money to put my grandfather through school to get the license for the funeral business and bought the funeral business back and it was just a simple bus stop time you can tell by the photograph the one and only photograph that I have that anyone has of her standing behind the counter and my grandmother actually sitting at the counter and a bunch of ladies and my uh, my uh, great uncle sitting at the end and uh, it's pretty sparsely decorated there's payphone on the side and folding chairs and the, the, the menu is kind of up on the wall and it says hamburger sandwich, five cents, spaghetti dinner, and tom-tom tamales, and that's, that's about all that's written on the walls. So, um, you know, it was always a family legend. No, not really a legend, but a family story about how Grandma Grace had a restaurant called The Duck Inn. I heard it my whole life. And it always stuck in my head, and I just thought it would be so cool to open a restaurant called The Duck Inn. And, uh, you know, a lot of things about this location uh, lent itself to naming it the Duck Inn. Everything from it being two blocks from where my great-grandmother lived to it being so close to the original Duck Inn. It's on the river. Um, I've got photographs that were in the original business plan of families of ducks walking on the sidewalk going past <laughs> the restaurant. So there's a lot of wildlife along the river. You know, the Chicago River a lot of people don't realize it, but I've seen everything from ducks, geese, coyotes, uh, possum, foxes, everything all along the river here because you know they come down from the forested areas and so forth. So the whole family connection, not just with my family being 
five, six generations in this neighborhood. I live a block away now. Um, but the family that owned this bar uh, lived in it for probably somewhere around 85 years. They raised three generations in the back. Those glass doors that go into our dining room, those weren't there 10 years ago. That was a wall. And everything after that was their home. I grew up around here, grew up with this family, played baseball with them, you know, came in here and got my dad's cigarettes and his beer <laughs> when I was a kid and played the Atari. I wanted to put an Atari Asteroids in the corner. I just couldn't find a good one. You know? yeah. I, if I still, if I find one of those tabletop Asteroids games, yeah. it's going right there. That's, <laughs> I can't tell you how much of my father's money I pumped into that thing. <laughs> and I'd be sitting there with his beer getting warm and his cigarettes sitting on top of it and he'd call Herman and say, where's my kid? So there's a lot of history to this location. I mean, they, they opened pre-prohibition. That's why there's a trap door behind the bar. So, But the street wouldn't have been Eleanor then. No, it wouldn't have been Eleanor. I don't know what it would have been. Uh, it's been a street for a very long time. And my whole time growing up on the street, um, it was really not recognized by the city of Chicago. So when I was a kid, we had no curbs. We didn't really have sewers. We had cinder out in our front parkway and we had cinder in our alleys so wiping out on that on your bike was an <laughs> absolute torture um and it was very industrial you know we had a we had a wrecking company across the street and there was a wholesome bread company at the end of the street semi trucks up and down the street all day and night so the street was rough it was torn up a lot of potholes and uh somewhere around the mid 90s my dad and a lot of other people in the neighborhood just kind of lobbied the city and finally got it you know, paved nicely and curbs put in and the alleys paved and it's much nicer. So it was just kind of an alley next to the river? Kind of, yeah. I think what my dad always said was uh, the street itself kind of got built by uh, more like, it was it was more like an alley or just a thoroughway up until around the Depression when uh, the WPA paved it in order to be kind of a shortcut from, they used to have a across the river right here on the river used to be a massive even when i was a kid massive probably five story six stories high coal pit coal pile and that was there since the depression was put there as a part of the you know new deal federal works give people jobs my dad said my grandfather had a job where all he did was shovel coal in a wheelbarrow and walk it across the street dump it back and forth (laughs) all day long um and the street was kind of put in to, to, to make it quick and easy to get to Archer because this street kind of bends around weirdly and goes and it bends around totally improperly. My dad actually owns the property at the end of the street and it, he owns this like curved weird little lot which if you go to the city because at one point I thought maybe I'd build a house there if you go to the city his property goes all the way out into the middle of the street because the street curves instead of ending turning. Yeah. But yeah, I, I can imagine that'll never happen. Me getting, yeah. <laughs> me getting the city to admit that it's my land or his land <laughs> and move the curbs. And, oh, and we'll just keep it as it is. <laughs> but yeah, I don't, and I don't know when it became Eleanor, but it was Eleanor when my dad moved in 62. And it's named after uh, Mayor Daly's, the original Mayor Daly's wife, yeah. Eleanor's sister. And uh, her, her brother was our neighbor my whole childhood. It's a great neighborhood in a lot of ways. You know, it's, it's got a great history. Um, it still has a lot of the people who made it what it is and who grew up here. A lot of those people stayed and they're very successful and they've gone on to do a lot of things, but they stayed in the neighborhood or they came back like myself. You know, I was gone from the neighborhood in Chicago. I was gone from the neighborhood probably from the age of technically 17 when I went away to college. And I didn't move back till I was 38 years old. You know, I lived all over the world and all over Chicago before deciding to come back. And uh, you know, again, it's got a lot of great aspects between the history and the quality of life and and, and so on and so forth. But also the location. So we got Chinatown right next to us, and Greek town right on top of us, and Little Italy, and all that had a big effect on you growing up as, as far as how I cook and the flavors that I look for. You know, I mean, I've been classified as modern American, new American, which is great because what American is to me is Chinese, Greek, Italian, you know, 
the stuff I grew up on. That's not, those are those flavors. That's what I think of my American upbringing. I grew up as a kid. I was uh, I, I was obsessed with food from a very young age, and I was cooking at home when I was 12, 13 years old. Like really cooking at home. You know, my mom worked in my my mom and dad split up, and my mom worked in politics, so she was out at night a lot doing uh, campaign stuff and that kind of thing. Um, so my sister is older than me, so. Um, my mom would leave us and she'd leave money and the house was full of food and she'd be like, order pizza, order Chinese or do whatever you want. And my sister would take the money and say, cook us something. <laughs> so she'd pocket all those 20s. And uh, so I'd tear through the cupboards in the refrigerator and I'd make food. And, uh, and it started as simple as opening cans of Chef Boyardee ravioli and adding you know, granulated garlic and dried oregano. Yeah. Then progressed, and you know we used to we, we we used to love Stouffer's French bread pizzas until I decided why are we buying these? I can make these. Right. So I started making the French bread pizzas, and you know just all kinds of fun stuff. So I was really into food, and we ate out a ton. My mom is a I won't say she's a bad cook. She doesn't cook. Period. Yeah. Ever, ever. And uh, so we went out all the time, and we ate in restaurants. And I, at a very young age, was going to high-end restaurants, and I loved it. I just love restaurants, love being in restaurants. And we used to go to this place on the southwest side called Old Prague, and I would get the half duck with bread dumplings. Oh, <laughs> God, I can still taste it. I don't know if it's still around. I heard it had a fire. I don't know if it ever reopened. Well, it's interesting, because people a lot of times think of Bridgeport, at least politically, as, you know, as sort of isolated, keeping, keeping Chinatown at bay and things yeah. like that, but you... Well, Chinatown kind of carved itself out of Bridgeport, technically. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, there's still one or two, maybe just one Italian restaurant in Chinatown. Right. Uh, Bertucci's. Bertucci's. Yeah, yeah. Which is a great old, like, tavern restaurant. It's kind of fun to go hang out there sometimes. And that's right in Chinatown. So yeah. that was all part of it. And Chinatown bleeds right into Bridgeport. Uh, if you keep going on Wentworth and you hit 26th Street and stuff, that's part of That's That's... As they as they say in the neighborhood, that's the other side. Yeah. <laughs> the other side of Halstead, which is technically, as, as Mayor Daly told me, that's New Bridgeport because that wasn't Bridgeport originally. This is the original Bridgeport that got annexed in, you know, eighty years ago or hundred yeah. years ago. But that was originally called Germantown. There's places that have been around for a long time that we grew up going to, um, uh, Rick and Benny's. Yeah. But when I was, you know, up until the 80s or 90s maybe Rick and Benny's was just a, a, a window you just walked up got <laughs> your food and, and you you could eat on the curb or hang yeah. out on the stoop or you took it and you went home and now it's like the commissary for city workers you know to me I, I always call it the safest restaurant in, 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 in Chicago because <laughs> I think cops. everyone in there everyone has a gun <laughs> <You Yeah. know? laughs> cop or not I think everybody's armed yeah. so yeah, yeah I mean it's always got at least eight cops whenever I go there. Yeah. You know, my wife gives me a hard time every time she sees it on the debit card. Why are we even like a penis? <laughs> I, 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 there's nothing open. I was on my way home. Yeah. I know, it's just 1 a.m. <laughs> yeah, I still love it. Every time, I, it's like an initiation, I bring my guys, go get them breaded steak sandwiches, bring right. them up, they're like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, then go lie on the couch. Yeah. And then, uh, Bridgeport Bakery is yeah. a great staple, and, and uh, we buy we buy a couple of things from them to make our dessert. We buy our croissants from them oh, really? to make our apple parsnip brown betty. Okay. Yeah, and we buy a lot of chocolate donuts just to eat because their chocolate donut is probably the best chocolate donut hmm. I've ever had. It's spectacular. I'm not forgotten donuts there. I've just gotten bacon, to get a chocolate bacon donut. donuts. Okay. Get a chocolate donut. Yeah, I'm gonna eventually gonna do like a bacon bun bread pudding or something. Yeah. I mean, that'd be awesome. <laughs> But the other great thing, the thing I love about them was like, when I originally was going to get the croissants to do the apple brown betty, I said to my chef, Aaron, I'm like, just go over there and tell me to buy their day-old croissants. He's like, they don't have it. They don't have any. They don't have anything. Yeah. He's like, I got to order them. I don't know, just order them. It's fine. <laughs> you know? And the same with the bacon buns. Oh, like, yeah. Well, we'll, buy, we'll buy their leftover bacon buns. Do you just no, leftovers? There's no, no we such sell thing. everything. If we don't, yeah. we're not going to sell it. We're not going to make it. Yeah. Like, okay. It's the reason you've been in business for 80 years.
The Duck Inn is at 2701 South Eleanor. I'll have links for all the places Kevin Hickey talked about, like Rico Benny's and Bridgeport Bakery, in the show post at skyfullofbacon.com. I'm often asked how to get started as a food writer in Chicago. Well, I couldn't answer that any better than the subject of this last segment, who had no ins into the business other than smarts about where to find opportunities, take full advantage of them, and discover what she was most interested in writing about along the way. Kate Bernat has had a prominent byline in Chicago food writing for the last few years, starting as the intern for another famous writer, and most recently serving as the nightlife reporter for Red Eye. But along the way, what she found was that she really liked writing about beer, enough that she's now leaving Chicago for Phoenix to cover beer nationally for Draft Magazine. You'd think I would have met her for a beer to talk about it, but she's just as serious about coffee. So we met at Buzz Killer Espresso in Wicker Park one morning before she left town in December to talk about her time in Chicago. I went to journalism school and really liked was always really interested in food and beverage and um, but bizarrely no one told me that you could bring those two together or it didn't occur to me which seems like really <laughs> dumb but when I was in journalism school I mean you know you can also order them with your food you know? <laughs> okay. um, the you know middle was pretty serious and I think you know, everyone just aspired to be like the next great political reporter or cover really intense education policy or something right. like that. Um, so I was just kind of interested in all this stuff on the side and was cooking a lot and worked in restaurants and um, doing like front of house stuff and then thought I wanted to go to culinary school. So actually at the my senior year of college, I applied to culinary schools in New York, toured them, thought I knew where I wanted to go. And then like super last minute was like wait a minute wait I don't have to go to culinary school I could just write about food um so you know withdrew my applications and all that um but just came to it I like it seemed late to me but it was kind of like the end of my senior year that I realized oh wait I I should have been doing this all along what have I been what have I been doing (laughs) um and I so uh I I saw that Steve Delinsky needed an intern for his um WBEZ yes I did that (laughs) he um he was you know uh producing some videos and some blogs for WBEZ and he needed um an intern and I think I was already past the application deadline and I just wrote him this like really rambling like sappy like please let me do this (laughs) you know help me Obi-Wan like you're my only hope (laughs) I've waited too long um and I guess some part of that seemed sincere, and uh, so yeah. So then or at least I grammatical, or at least it was very grammatically correct. Yes, yeah. this is true. And um, yeah, he let me tag along with him for that was maybe like six months. So that was a really good way to learn the city too, from like fine dining to holes in the wall. So that was that was really fun. And yeah, I mean, he really, you know, I guess took a chance with me. But then again, I was working for free, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to take a chance on right. free labor. All right, so I was trying to think where I first met you. It must have been some event for I would you assume. with Feast. Yeah. So, yeah, tell me about Feast. Oh, man, Long Feast. departed. Yeah, RIP. Oh. Um, yeah, wow, that's... It feels like a really long time ago, but, I, I mean, it really wasn't. Um, so Feast uh, was, yeah, NBC, Universal's, you know, I guess answer to Eater and Grub Street. Um, and... I was first in touch with them when it was still in beta, and Carly Fisher was the editor, and that's the only person they had here in Chicago. Um, Yeah, I thought, you know, the feast went through a lot of different iterations. It came out of beta, and then they added different verticals, and, like, it really, you know, kind of became um, different than I think we ever expected, not in a bad way. Um, But, yeah, and then, you know, like like other uh, other sites of its type, um, when corporate things happen, they disappear. So NBC and Comcast merged, and we were summarily told that our jobs no longer existed. Um, but I mean, I mean, I'm really proud of what 
we did there. And uh, I mean, it was a super fast learning experience for me and I couldn't have asked for a better like training ground than that, so. So did you write all kinds of things, not just food? Or yeah, food, I mean food, um, some drink stuff, um, you know, multimedia things were a push there for a while. So we experimented with like shooting our own video and um, you know, producing so much content on a daily basis, you learn really fast. Um, and so, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't have really asked for a better first gig in Chicago than that. I mean, so when you went to Red Eye, did you, you did something in between? Um, yeah, I helped, um, I did Blackboard Eats for a little while. I helped, um, Stephen Hamilton, the food photographer launched his magazine called Who's Hungry, um, which was super fun. That was a really cool project to just build something from the ground stages up um and that's like that was an interesting lesson too in a certain different kind of media where you know it's published by one person and um you know but we we were hiring writers and you know editing as we as i would any other publication so that was an interesting kind of hybrid model um that you weren't as i don't know like the vision could be entirely his, you know? It's not like there was some corporate board of directors that was telling you how to do something. Um, Also, you know, it was privately financed. So, you know, however many dollars and resources you can throw at it is what you can throw at it. So, um, so yeah, that was kind of, it was, I, I think it was a cool model and um, I was really happy to, to work on that. It was fun. I mean, it was, from storyboarding the first issue to, you know, now seeing it continue to exist is really cool. So. Yeah, because it was basically visually driven. Cause it yeah, was, yeah, because he's a, a photographer. For his photographer. Right, exactly. Um, but, you know, it's an interesting, it's interesting that that's, I mean, it paid writers decently, you know, and it's interesting that that's, that's one in weird hybrid model that maybe yeah. Um, yeah. could, you know, can work. Um so, and it, yeah, and it's fun to think about a magazine from sort of visual and story first that way um, was an exercise for me, you know, having come from such a writing, writing, writing background. So that was fun, too. Mm-hmm. So then you went to Red Eye. Yes. And I was at Red Eye for two and a half years. Well, first I was freelancing for them, um, doing restaurant reviews. And then there was an opening on the copy desk. And I figured if I got my foot in the door there eventually, on the copy desk eventually, you know, I could do um, more food and drink writing after that. So, and that's exactly what happened. So I was on copy desk for six months and then a nightlife reporter for two years. Okay. So you made a conscious decision to do more, more drink and less food. So yeah, now it's, I, in the nightlife position, I was um, totally on the beverage side, um, and it really grabbed me. I don't know. It was, I guess, because it was something I actively wanted to learn more about. Like, I felt like I had done the food stuff, and now I really wanted to dive into cocktails and beer and wine when they would let me write about wine. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, it was just something new that I wanted to learn about. And yeah. Well, yeah, and there's one of the big questions that I've had people talk about before <clears throat> on my podcast. It's like, you know, cocktails, beer, and wine there's definitely cocktails and beer and then not much wine yeah that's true and uh that was that a directive there i mean i can imagine no not i no it wasn't um it's not like anyone told me not to write about wine and i've written a few wine stories for red eye but it was you know i mean red eye's audience is millennials they're like 18 to you know late 20s and um you know it's i was always careful to write those stories about wine in a way that were super accessible not going to freak people out um i mean i didn't really even write much about um types of wine necessarily it was more like here's how to go about buying wine here's you know some things to consider when you're at the liquor store or looking at a wine list and and it's different than beer or cocktails i think in that um it's when you talk wine it's like a geography lesson it's a history lesson it's a vocabulary lesson um which i don't think you have that barrier as much with cocktails or beer i mean yeah. it, it can exist but you know for like a base level you don't need to know like every hop varietal you know <laughs> versus um wine kind of puts that right out there so
now you're going off to write for a beer publication. Yes. So tell, tell me about that. Um, so yeah, I am going to take the associate editor position at Draft Magazine, um, which is a an every other month, which I never know if that's bi-monthly or what that word is. It's published every other month. Um, consumer, nationally focused beer magazine. Um, yeah, I'm really excited about it. Uh, beer really became a, a great love of mine uh, in the last, I don't know, three years maybe. And um, I think there's just so much to be written about and so much to learn. And there's some, there's travel in there and there's, you know, Draft also does food stuff. And uh, yeah, I'm just, I really can't wait to get in there and have a national platform and a national scope. Um, because Chicago is awesome, and now I want to learn about other cities. So, yeah. so when you when you got more interested in beer, how did that happen? Um, through through food, I mean, talking to chefs and being at Green City Market, I would see brewers there too, and um, hearing the ways that uh, chefs were collaborating with brewers made me really interested in learning more about it. Um, I think in Chicago, the beer and food scene scenes talk to each other pretty well and generally interact pretty pretty well um so it just seemed like yeah just something i wanted to learn more about and i realized the ways that like wine pairings that beer could really play well with food and um i enjoyed the kind of also the the process of it the I, you know the science of it is interesting to me um so yeah it was just something new to learn about and then um once i saw the real range of what beer could be um it really grabbed me and it, it interests me in the way that wine does where there there's also like historic styles and there's geography and there are stories to to beer so um yeah it was just something new to learn about now i mean there's breweries opening <laughs> like yeah. faster than i can keep track of it was my full-time job basically to keep track of breweries and i still couldn't do it i'd get emails like hey are you coming to our brewery opening and i'd be like i've never even heard of you in my life yeah. what you know i haven't even heard of the suburb either. yeah <laughs> thank god red eye only covered chicago proper because if we had got into suburban stuff i would have just jumped off the top of tribune tower um I mean, it's just the the sheer number is, like, staggering to me. Um, but, yeah, I mean, and it's cool when breweries have their own, their own um, you know, identity and story. Like, Five, Five Rabbit in Bedford Park, you know, does all these Latin-style beers, and that's really cool. That's, like, their own thing that they can really own. And the new um, Forbidden Root guys doing these, like, botanic beers. I mean, it's a little esoteric, but I don't think... I think, you know, it's cool when you have a story to tell. And, uh, well, and the alternative is, hey, we made an IPA. Yeah, we made another know? pale ale, and it's pretty okay. Yeah. You know, it's hard, to, it's hard to hang your hat on that in Chicago. That'll fly in other cities or other smaller... Well, that's what I was wondering. Are yeah. other places experimental like this at all? Um, I mean, yeah, definitely. There are other big, you know, beer cities that cool things are happening in, Um or just people kind of doing their own, uh, you know, uh, Corey King from um, uh, from Perennial doing his uh, doing this like experimental sour series um, on the side is really interesting. So there's there's cool pockets of innovation happening, but I think you know a lot of small breweries around the country, especially in smaller cities, you know, all they have to do is be good at making solid accessible styles and they kind of become your town's little local watering hole and that's totally great too i think that's important and that's how 95 percent of americans you know are drinking um you know just out there it doesn't have to like you know change the world it's just like a good beer um i think you know those things are both valid but in chicago you need to maybe do a little bit more (laughs) okay so tell me things you're gonna miss oh my gosh I mean, I'm going to Phoenix where they're... So I ate... Um, there's a lot I, of air conditioning. There's a here. lot of air conditioning and pools and, like, scorpions, I think. Um, <laughs> uh, I've had... I've been to the Phoenix area a few times, and I've had really awesome um, Mexican food. So I'm, I'm pretty confident I can still get a good, you know, taco or salsa. Um, but, <laughs> I mean, I'm... I, I, 
I'm going to miss just the sheer number of options. I mean, I'm so spoiled here with the food scene. Like, I'm like, I want Northern Thai today. And yeah. I still have, like, multiple Northern right. Thai options. So which one? Yeah. Right. So, I mean, that's just incomparable. Um, I think I'm going to miss good coffee. I mean, I hope there's some awesome roaster out there. But um, coffee is pretty much the way I get through the first half of my day. And I'm going to miss that. Chicago has such a an abundance of really good coffee that, you know, I don't know that I'll have that that many Though options. it's another DIY thing, like making beer, so... It's true, yeah. Um, I mean... You find the crazy coffee guy who does the five-minute pour-over like we're having here. <laughs> and... It's true, it's true. I mean, I think also having, you know, um, coming into a job in in beer naturally puts you in touch with interesting people always. I mean, even, um, you know, Draft and, and Red Eye never covered homebrewing all that much. I wrote one, one homebrew story for, um, for Red Eye that was really interesting about Chaos, which is a shared homebrew space um, in the city. And uh, anyone who homebrews also tends to do other cool DIY things. Right. I mean, everyone you meet that's a homebrewer also, like, fixes motorcycles or makes kombucha or, like, sews their own clothing. And it's, you know, so getting in touch with people like that in a new city puts you in touch with an interesting social network for sure. All right, let's say there's one little bit of room left in your moving van. Yes. And <laughs> you're going to go shop at, at a really good place to get beer. What are you going to fill that hole? Oh, man, from Chicago? From Chicago to take with you. Oh, man. Um, Well, actually, I was loading up my beer cellar yesterday and packaging it all up. And, you know, some stuff was going to have to get left behind and some was going to come with me. And it was, like, horrible. It was, like, Sophie's choice of (laughs) alcohol. Um, Sophie's choice of Sophia. Yeah, there we go. Um, I, oh, man. You know, it's tempting to say, like, oh, I would... Because Bourbon County just got released, and it's tempting to say I would bring that. But, like, I don't know that I want to drink Imperial Stout in the desert. Um, So I'm going to go with... um, Oh, man. I'm going to go with some of the... um, I'm really into Temperance's um, Gatecrasher IPA. I'm not even a huge IPA fan, but... uh, I really like that IPA, and it would be really refreshing in the desert. And I, they just started canning it. I would take a six-pack of Temperance Gatecrasher. Um, maybe some of the off-color Berliner Weiss, because that would drink really well in the desert, too. And that's pretty delicious. I really like that beer. So, Okay. Those are my two. <laughs> All right. Good luck. Thank you. you. Thanks. I'll miss you, Chicago. Thanks for returning for a new year. And thanks to Greg Biggers, Leo Malinsky, Chrissy Cox, and the Sofitel Hotel and Cafe des Architects Restaurant. Julia Pham and Double Happiness. Kevin Hickey and Rocket Ranch. And Kate Bernat and Buzz Killer Espresso. Music is by Kevin McLeod. I'll be back soon with another episode. This was episode 16. I love this dirty town.